again. Um, I had originally planned to write, to, to talk about the different names that this congregation has gone through. There are three or four over the course of history. And so I started digging around in our archives and I started digging around in the Nebraska Historical Society archives and I got so captivated by one story in particular that trying to do the whole of the different name changes felt, uh, felt like too much. So uh, it will be a little bit different this morning. We've often marked the founding of this church as 1898. All Souls Church of Lincoln celebrated its 50th anniversary in 1948. Uh, the book of history I have on my shelf uh, was published in 1998 to celebrate, quote, the first 100 years. But there is another history to this place. Because the Unitarians did not suddenly come to be in Lincoln in 1898, the Universalist history in Lincoln, Nebraska, goes right back to the earliest days of statehood. And it is a journey of triumph, it's a journey of hardship, and it is ultimately a journey of transformation. I've spent much of the last week in the archives we have downstairs, as well as the Historical Society, and rather than try to tell the story myself, I'd like to give over much of this sermon to the voices of the First Universalist Society of Lincoln, which are in front. So we begin in 1901, when a letter arrived in Lincoln from the Reverend E.H. Chapin. Chapin was then serving a Universalist congregation in Maine, but he wrote inquiring about the events that took place after he left Lincoln five years earlier. Dear friend Hatfield, I think you told me when you were here last summer that you kept a copy of your correspondence with the Board of Trustees of the Universalist General Convention from the time I left Lincoln until the church became Unitarian. There seems to be a growing tendency on the part of the Universalist and Unitarian bodies to get nearer together. We have some men in our ministry who are very much opposed to having anything whatever to do with the Unitarians. One such already has an article in press which will be published in the Universalist Leader this week, citing Lincoln as an instance where the Unitarians used underhanded methods <laughs> to get a church away from the Universalists. While some of us know this is far from being true, we must be prepared to meet his argument before the general body. If you have anything which you think would aid me in this respect, I wish you would forward it at once. Yours faithfully, E.H. Chapin, October 2nd, 1901. So to understand what Chapin was asking for, we have to begin to understand the three decades that led up to that letter. History texts both of our congregation and of Nebraska agree that the first Universalist services were held in Lincoln in 1869, led in part by a charismatic Universalist preacher named J.N. Parker. 
In September of 1870, a meeting was held in the home of the Monell family to formally incorporate the First Universalist Society of Lincoln. A year later, the new state of Nebraska granted the Universalists a parcel of land on 12th and A Street, not far from, well, it was a couple capitals ago, but where the capital is now. And ground was broken on a wooden A-frame chapel. In a history of Lincoln, published in 1889, A.B. Hay writes, all this was brought about largely through the efforts of one devoted woman, Mrs. Mary Monell. It was she who first gathered the few scattered Universalists in the place together. Unaided, she raised the subscription to build the chapel. She collected the funds, saw that the work was done, and paid the bills. The early records of the society reveal the zeal and fidelity with which she did her work, the many difficulties upon which she had to contend, and her final triumph. Mrs. Monell must always be looked upon as the patron saint of the First Universalist Society of Lincoln. These difficulties and triumphs are a common euphemism when you're going through the archives of the Universalist Society, describing the first few years of their existence. The history published by this congregation makes a reference to trouble with Mr. Parker related to finances. But an 1870 letter to Mary Monell puts it more bluntly. To Mrs. Mary Monell, dear sister, good news. A letter from the Reverend G.W. Montgomery, chairman of our committee of discipline, informing me that he has officially notified Reverend J.N. Parker that he must, within 10 days after the receipt of the letter, pay the amount due the society or give satisfactory security and certified to Brother Montgomery as such under the hand of the society or he would be cited to show cause why he should not be suspended from the ministry. I declare this to be good news, although I am reluctantly compelled to answer to Brother Montgomery's opinion that Parker will neither pay nor give security and that the society will never be benefited a single dollar by his collection. You will reach hard pan and the feverish dreams will be at an end. You will know upon what you have to rely and can go before the executive board with additional claims in view of the swindle at the hands of a recognized clergyman. It is good news also because you have no longer to sustain the odium of representing a denomination which disregards the moral character of its clergy. G.W. Tomlinson, October 20th, 1870. So the itinerant Universalist minister who initially helped raise funds for the congregation in Lincoln had, it seems, run out of Lincoln with most of the funds that the society had initially raised. This slowed down the construction of the A-frame chapel somewhat. <laughs> it was eventually built, though, and the first minister to serve the society was Reverend James Girton. His salary was funded as a missionary program of the Universalist General Convention, and when the funding ran out in the midst of a financial panic in 1873, he resigned his position. For 10 years, from 1873 to 1883, Services were occasionally held in the wooden chapel, at times led by members of the community, and at least some of the time by a Unitarian minister out of Omaha named W.E. Copeland. 
It was also in this time that Unity, which was a Unitarian magazine based out of Chicago, made this observation in regard to Copeland's work. The liberals of Nebraska are, as a whole, very radical. <laughs> Having cut loose entirely from the moorings of the old theology, and they can be reached by no form of religious faith <laughs> other than our own. In 1883, the Universalist Society had organized itself enough to call its second and longest tenured minister, Reverend Eben Chapin. Now, we don't actually have a whole lot of Eben Chapin's writing. It didn't survive other than that first letter that Becky read. But we do have a letter written in 1914 by his wife, Kate, back to members of this congregation who were developing a congregational history. Dear Dr. Philbrick, you did not state how soon you wish the facts in regard to Mr. C's Lincoln pastorate, but I'm taking my first opportunity to reply. In February, 1883, I was teaching school in Meriden, Connecticut, my hometown, and Mr. Chapin was pastor of the Grove Hill Church in one of the most delightful suburbs of Boston, having been called to the place before he graduated from Tufts Divinity School. We were to be married in two years, and I was looking forward to life in that interesting city and among the most congenial people. On arriving home one afternoon, I found a letter from Mr. C stating that the general convention had written him to know if he would go out to Lincoln, Nebraska, as the church there had appealed for help. He went on to state that it would be hard work, uncertain, and small salary, and so they were having trouble finding anyone willing to make the sacrifice. As he was a Western man, he felt he should heed to call for help. And what did I think about marrying at once and starting out on May March 1st? You can fancy I did not have much appetite for supper. <laughs> I wrote that he must follow the dictates of his own conscience in the matter of work always and wherever that led, I would follow and do my share, but we would not be married at once. He would have to come back after me if he went in March. He agreed to my plan and preached his first sermon in Lincoln on March 12th, I think, 1883. I doubt if there ever was such a, another organization, and it never got on at all in Mr. C's absence. Its members were all shades of beliefs from the old-fashioned universalists who believed in the Trinity to the broad-gauged Unitarians who used to advocate for Mr. C the desirability of his saying good instead of God and, dispense, <laughs> and dispensing with prayer in the pulpit and reading a poem instead <laughs> in, of scripture. We also had spiritualists, uh, theosophists, uh, ethical culturalists, and advanced thinkers, as one lady unblushingly declared herself. <laughs> but Mr. C had a wonderful power of leadership, and under his guidance, all petty differences melted away, and we were just one little family. There were the most excited discussions during the meetings, and hotshot was frequently exchanged and blows delivered from the shoulder. <laughs> but clo at close of the meeting, the belligerents shook hands in the most friendly manner. <laughs> So during Chapin's time in Lincoln, which sounds 
familiar. <laughs> the society prospered. Attendance went up. The congregation grew out of its wooden chapel. In 1892, they built a new brick church at the 12th and H location, right before another financial panic hit at the same time as a major crop failure in Nebraska. Between 1892 and 1895, many leading families of the church were forced to move away from Lincoln, and the church found itself unable to pay Chapin's salary. In 1896, Chapin resigned. There's a resolution from the, the congregation saying that he resigned, not because of anything that he did, but because of the things that we did, because we could not afford him. But in 1896, the Chapins moved to Galesburg, Illinois, where Eben joined the faculty of the Divinity School at Lombard College, which is now in Chicago and called the Bill Lombard Theological School that merged with the Unitarian Seminary in 61. The years that followed were lean ones for the society. The archives from this time are filled with literally dozens of letters on this fine skin onion paper in purple carbon copy. All letters from I.H. Hatfield, an attorney here in Lincoln of some note, and the secretary of the congregation. An example of one of those letters reads, To the Reverend J.H. Palmer, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Dear Sir, Your favor of August 27th, addressed to the clerk of the Universalist Parish in the city, was handed to me as such clerk. I regret we're not in a position to negotiate with you definitively with reference to your becoming our pastor. The reason for Mr. Chapin's resignation was the financial difficulties under which the church is laboring, and our people at this time cannot see their ways clear to calling another man. As you probably know, we're having unusually hard times in Nebraska, and our congregation has been especially hard hit by the unprecedented decline in all property values. A new church was built in 1891-92, and in accordance with time-honored precedent, it was built too large and at too great expense, leaving, as usual, quite an indebtedness. It seems to be the unanimous sentiment of the parish to leave the pulpit vacant for a time, the length of which to be governed by circumstances, but at least until we can remove some of the burden of debts by the regular revenues of the church. By saving the salary paid to the pastor... <laughs> <laughs> we can very soon be able to call a new man. It's not intended to allow the church organization to go to pieces or remain idle meantime. Everything is to be kept up as usual as nearly as possible. We have a committee on the matter of supplying the pulpit, which has been already arranged for some months in advance by making use of the talent within our church in the city. I explained this in detail so you will understand as fully as possible why we declined to enter into negotiations to secure a pastor. I hope we'll be able to do something early in 1897. If it should happen you're then free to come to us, we'd be glad to have you visit with reference to a settlement. However, until our finances are in better condition, we would not deem it fair for you to come here as we could not assure you of being able to fulfill what we might undertake. Very truly yours, Clerk of the Parish, I.H. Hatfield, September 1st, 1896. So the financial situation did not improve. The society appealed to the Universalist General Convention, but they too were dealing with the results of the national economic downturn, and they were unable to help. 
It is also true that the reputation of the Universalist General Convention to this day is of a national organization that did not have its financial affairs in order particularly well. They were constantly, constantly out of money. In 1898, the society began a negotiation with the American Unitarian Association. And the thing that's important to remember is that this is 60 years, this is two generations before the Unitarians and the Universalists became Unitarian Universalists. So these are two very different denominations with differing theologies and differing management styles. By late 1898, the first Universalist Society of Lincoln had become All Souls Church Unitarian. And it was in this context that that first letter that we heard, Chapin wrote to Hatfield asking more details about what happened. This is a much longer story than we have time for this morning, but a portion of Hatfield's reply to that letter describes the last few days and months of institutional universalism here in Lincoln. On May 20th, 1898, a parish meeting was once again held and the records show, whereas, we are now advised that the General Convention cannot assist us sufficiently to meet the exigencies of our situation. And believing that the General Convention has done all in its power to assist us without avail, and realizing the necessity of taking immediate action to relieve the stress of our financial condition, therefore be it resolved that we take active steps towards securing the organization of a Unitarian Church to assist in the society. The resolution was adopted without a single dissenting voice and the first Universalist Society of Lincoln adjourned sine die. On May 27, 1898, a meeting of all those interested was held pursuant to a public call and All Souls Church was formed. Negotiations were opened with the American Unitarian Association and arrangements were made to remove the difficulties that crushed the Universalist Society and a foundation laid for a successful church. If the question arises as to the advisability of attempting a closer union between the Universalist and Unitarian churches, Lincoln can be cited as an instance where complete union of all Universalists and Unitarians has been a marked success. Practically every one of those connected with the Universalist Church afterwards became identified with All Souls Church, and there was never any friction of denominational jealousy. The new church is flourishing and grows steadily in all elements of strength. So that's the very short version. <laughs> there are boxes and boxes of letters. Hatfield wrote probably 40 letters to, to ministers who expressed interest in serving here, all 40 of which over two years got progressively curter and curter <laughs> in saying, no, we can't afford a minister. No, no, no. The messages literally get shorter. He, he cut off the bottom of the onion skin paper <laughs> to save paper as it, as it got. <laughs> so why does this matter? Why, why does all of this history matter? You know, the, the first is, well, it's, it's worth mentioning too that there's a whole different story how all Souls Church became the Unitarian Church of Lincoln. That happens 50 years later. But it's important, I think, because the Universalist heritage is central to this place. 
And to know our history allows us to see the arc of our journey. Lincoln was important in how the Unitarians and Universalists interacted positively in the years before the merger. There was a 50-year courtship before the two denominations merged. And in the midst of rancor and questions about how well it would work, Lincoln was pointed to both as an example of how it worked well and as an example of how those Unitarians were coming and poaching Universalist churches. So we're a part of this. We're not just the Unitarians in Lincoln. I think that make this makes it pretty clear. This congregation developed as both, developed as both sides of the family. And it is worth mentioning that the Universalist Society of Lincoln was founded in September of 1870, which means that the 150th anniversary of Universalism in Lincoln, Nebraska is in September 2020, which is coming up soon. So how might we incorporate that into our life? We know where we are because we know where we've been. Knowing congregational history informs who the congregation is now and where the congregation might go. We have great records of 1870 to 1898. We have less great records for other portions of our history. One of the things that we're going to do in the next month is ask folks who have, who have been here a little while to sit down with a microphone and talk about how this church has evolved over the last 50 years. So that someday, 100 years from now, some minister relatively new to Lincoln will go to the Nebraska Historical Society and paw through the archives and find recordings of congregants from 2019 talking about the late 20th and early 21st century of Unitarianism in Lincoln. Churches connect us across generations and to be in conversation with these folks over 150 years is something beautiful. So let us be that legacy for the next generation and go in peace today.